pray, and I'm going to jump right in uh, to the Bible study in Ruth chapter 3. And the message I, tonight, I've entitled it, A Risky Step of Faith. We've been in Ruth uh, in a case of redemption, thinking about uh, specifically the kinsman redeemer, and the story has been building up to this point. And we're not going to complete the story tonight, uh, but yet it's another chapter in it as it unfolds. Uh, Ruth was set in the time of the judges, around 1200 uh, BC. We've discovered some very important and practical lessons as we've gone through this book. Uh, just a reminder of the backstory, I won't go into depth, but you remember that there was a famine in the land of Israel. Elimelech, uh, Naomi, and their sons Malan and Kilian left Bethlehem to go to the land of Moab to find work and food. While they were in Moab, each of the sons married Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, and suffering and death followed with Limelech dying along with Malan and Kilian. Naomi and her daughters-in-law were left as widows. Naomi decided she was going to go back to Bethlehem along with Ruth, who wanted to go with her, who made a commitment of loyalty, and then the other daughter-in-law decided that she was going to stay in Moab. As I mentioned, the whole story has been building up to the kinsman redeemer. Now, you remember a kinsman redeemer was a relative who, according to the Old Testament law, had the privilege or the responsibility, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble or in danger or in need. Uh, the kinsman redeemer uh, could buy back a family member or their land that had been sold under duress, and it was particularly an act of grace in that this was applied to Ruth, who was a foreigner. Uh, that was not the original intent of the principle. And as we've worked our way through the first two chapters, Boaz has now revealed himself to be a man of character and compassion. He also evidently was a man of means, evidenced by the fact that he owned land and had provision and had people working for him and so on. And it was by the providence of God that Ruth went into the fields owned by Boaz to glean and to gather what they needed to survive. Through that, God provided peace, God provided protection for them, and he gave them what they needed. And we learned of Boaz being kind and gracious to Ruth the Moabitess. She's continually referred to in that way, reminding us that she's not of the land, she's a foreigner, and yet by God's grace, she's receiving what she needs. So when we left off in Ruth, we did so highlighting the role that Boaz has in redemptive history. We saw how he descended from the tribe of Judah. He came out of Bethlehem to bless his people. Uh, he was the one whom the promise of the Messiah would ultimately come through in the genealogical line of Christ. And he was a man who was in the right place at the right time to be used by God to carry out God's will and God's purposes among his people. Boaz owned a field, uh, at least and possibly more evidently, into which he sent laborers. He received Ruth when she came into the fields to glean, and he would ultimately become that kinsman redeemer. And we saw how Boaz, in all of these things, is a type of Christ. 
Uh, Christ, of course, being the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who came out of Bethlehem to bless his people, the one who is the son of David, the redeemer of God's elect, the one who sends laborers into the fields to work, the one who always treats people well, who receives and welcomes Gentiles, the one who receives and pays our debt and therefore gains the right to make us his bride. And Boaz had to honor and keep the demands of the Mosaic law, and he did that. And then he also would have to pay a price in order to have the role as the kinsman redeemer. Now, all that's just a little bit of backdrop to get us up to speed as a refresher, a reminder of where we've come from and where we're at tonight as we approach chapter 3. And I want you to remember that God brought all of this to pass. Every detail points to God. It points to the fact that God is a good God and he cares for his people and he's gracious and gives us not what we deserve. He gives us mercy in that we don't get what we deserve, but he gives us grace and gives us what we do not deserve. And God in that is our guide and he's constantly leading, moving, working, even behind the scenes when we don't realize it. So we now arrive at the most peculiar marriage proposal in all the Bible. Now, if you're married or uh, perhaps you've been married, uh, think about how you met your spouse. Uh, Emily and I always say that uh, we practically raised each other because we were just kids uh, when uh, we knew each other and then later on began to date and ultimately got married, and that's been a long time ago now. Uh, but everybody has a story. Everybody's got a background. Everybody has some sort of circumstances that brought them together. Well, this is a most peculiar circumstance that would bring these people together. A woman asking a man essentially to marry her, and he agrees. A foreigner asking a Jew to marry her, and he's going to agree. Essentially, an employee asking her boss to marry her. And yet God has his ways according to his eternal plan in carrying out his will. And while nothing about this meeting here seems normal to us, it's a story of how God was working and a good man and a good woman found each other and ended up getting married. So the first point I want to share with you tonight is that a risky step of faith is usually evidenced by a plan. It's usually evidenced by a plan. Let's pick up reading in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 1, and we'll go through verse 6 in this section. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you'll be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying, go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. Verse 5, so Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. Verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. 
Now here was the setting. Harvest time had come. That's the key that er- to everything else pretty much that happens in the story. Uh, they had planted. Uh, it had grown. The time for the harvest had come. And now here they are, not only at the time of a harvest, but they're also on the postscript, if you will, of a time of famine leading in to a time of plenty. After years of famine, there was a good harvest. And that's why Naomi knew that Boaz would be at the threshing floor because it was harvest time. They were gathering in what they had grown. Now, the threshing floor was essentially a a flat spot, uh, usually near the top of a hill where the wind could separate the barley from the chaff. Um, There are dozens of references to the threshing floors in the Bible. Um, There was no machinery in in that time. So after the harvest, the grain would be separated and they had to have a flat, smooth surface in order to be able to do that. And they would spread out the sheaves on the floor and tread over them repeatedly as they're separating the good from the bad. It was a good time of the year for the farmers because it meant that all their hard work was about to pay off. They had planted barley months before. They had waited on the rain. They had had the sunshine come down as nutrients on the crop. And as the owner of the land and the owner of the harvest, Boaz would be at the threshing floor for a couple of reasons. To oversee his workers and also possibly to be there to to protect his crop from anyone doing harm to it or stealing it and taking something that was not their own. So you got Naomi, she knows what's happening here, and she has a plan. Her plan is that she wants to provide rest for Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law. They had already experienced the kindness that had come from Boaz. Now the plan was moving forward. Now what's interesting here is that in chapter 2, it was Ruth who took the initiative. In chapter 3, Naomi is taking the initiative. Hope is alive and Naomi is prompted to pursue that hope. She was a good mother-in-law and she wanted what was good for her daughter-in-law. Now I think when I think about planning and, and how faith and planning intersect and kind of go together, I realize that there's a tension between faith and planning. After all, Christian history is full of stories of people of great faith. Uh, Everybody would like to be uh, like Peter who was willing to step out of the boat and walk on the water at least temporarily until he took his eyes off of Jesus. But what about the other examples in the scripture where there was obedience followed by uh, faith or coupled with faith, I should say, also evidenced by a plan to do what God wanted them to do? Think about the example of Nehemiah, who would intentionally plan to rebuild Jerusalem's wall. Or what about David's strategic preparation for the building of the temple, even though he was not the one who would build it, he was the one who would make preparations for everything that they needed in order to build it. Uh, That in itself was a step of faith because he wanted to honor God, but because he was a man of war, he would not be the one who would actually build it, but yet he had to have faith to prepare for that. And to do something significant and lasting does not mean that it's typically or certainly always going to be 
just a jump uh, in the moment into a step of faith. It can include planning. And we should not see faith and planning as polar opposites. Now, why would Naomi suggest the plan that she did? Well, I think the key is in verse 2. She asked the question here in verse 2. Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Now, Naomi had already taken Ruth in, made her a part of her family, even though she was a foreigner from Moab. In one way or the other, uh, we find here now that Boaz is related to Elimelech. He's related in some way to Naomi's late husband. We're not told specifically how. Was he a cousin? Perhaps. Was he an uncle? Was he a distant relative? We're not told. But what we do understand from this, coupled with the concept of the kinsman redeemer, is that he was in the same family tree which qualified him to be the kinsman redeemer. And Naomi knew that he was qualified to rescue Ruth and to provide a home and a future for her. Now let's pause just for a moment and think about the difference between something that is descriptive in the Bible and something that is prescriptive in the Bible. Here's what I mean by that. When you study the Bible, it is important to understand whether or not a particular passage of Scripture is descriptive or prescriptive. Something that is descriptive simply tells us about something that has happened. Something that is prescriptive teaches us about something that should happen. Where we can sometimes get ourselves into trouble as we're studying the Bible and thinking about how it applies to us is if we apply a descriptive principle to biblical interpretation to an action that we should be or must be taking uh, when in fact it's not prescriptive for us. It's just given us an example to make a greater point. And I think that's what's happening in this story. Yes, it's a story about uh, the kinsman redeemer. Yes, it's a story about a foreigner being welcomed in. Yes, it's a story about a relationship that is being put together. But the greater story is about who God is and his providence. The greater story is about redemption and what he would do ultimately in Christ, who is our kinsman redeemer. So when we learn these tremendous things from the story about the faithfulness of God and about the loyalty of Ruth and about the planning of Naomi and all the details that go with it, we've got to be careful about saying, well, we should do something exactly the way they did it. And that's not the point of it. And it's important for us as we study other sections of the scripture as well. Now, Ruth and Boaz had already met in the harvest field. Evidently, she had made a positive impression on him because back in chapter 2 and verse 11, Boaz answered her and said, everything you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and mother in your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. And then he said this in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 12, may the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. So I think what we find here is that Naomi's plan was not some type of 
immoral plan. It's certainly not coming from uh, bad motives at all. But what we also find here is that for propriety's sake, Boaz was not in a position to approach Ruth on his own. Now, this is important because she was young, or at least compared to him, she was young. Uh, She was a widow. Uh, She was from Moab. She was working for him. In that culture, it would have made all of that uh, inappropriate. Boaz, being older, probably might even think that Ruth would desire a younger man. Ruth, being younger and a foreigner, probably feels unworthy of the kindness that Boaz would extend to her. But what we're going to find here is that Boaz would do the right thing. That was according to his character. He would do the compassionate thing because he cared. And he would do the honorable thing because ultimately he wanted to honor God. So when we look at all those factors, we ask ourselves, who could blame Naomi for such a plan? After all, Boaz was a good man and Ruth was a good woman. And the details about her approach set the scene and would show Boaz how serious Ruth was. So what I see here in this intent is not some sort of midnight seduction, but rather a way that they could be joined together as husband and wife. And Naomi might be thinking at that point, hey, God didn't bring us this far for nothing. I mean, she's got sense enough to look around her and see that God had provided for them, even though they had gone to a foreign land. He had given them safe passage now to come back to their home village, and now he's working out something even greater, and she devises this plan for Ruth to undertake. One commentator said, hope, based on a dependence on a sovereign God, motivates us to pursue and dream and act. It will inspire us to action and service. It will help us grasp a vision. That kind of hope comes from realizing that God is sovereign. If he wasn't, there would be no hope. If we could only depend on ourselves, there would be little hope. But God's hope never disappoints us. It does, however, require action. Naomi was specific. She knew where Boaz would be, how he would be sleeping. Ruth knew the risk involved in such an approach, but she evidently felt that God was orchestrating this and she was willing to take the risk. Faith includes taking a risk and leaving the outcome to God. When the sun went down and Ruth left for the threshing floor, uh, it was a step of faith. And when we take a step forward, God will give us the light that we need in order to trust in him. The second point I want to make here in Ruth chapter 3 is that a risky step of faith likely includes a proposal. We move now from the plan to the proposal. Let's pick back up reading in verse 7. Verse 7 says, After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Verse 10, then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you've not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. 
Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there's a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. Verse 14, so she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. And then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl. And she went into the town. So midnight comes. It's quiet on the threshing floor. Boaz stirs and he realizes his feet are uncovered. And when he looks into the darkness, what does he see? He sees a young woman lying at his feet. Now that's enough to startle you, certainly to make you wonder what in the world's going on here. Uh, it certainly could have been something illicit in those days, even though he, being a man of character, was in the place where he was supposed to be. There could have potentially been someone there that was not supposed to be there that had other intentions for her approach to him. And Boaz asked the question, who are you? And she answers, I am Ruth, your servant. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Now, understand this request to take her under his wing was basically a marriage proposal. It was Ruth's way of saying, bring me under your protection. Now, I want to I show you a connection here that I think is incredibly important to this story. Because in Ruth chapter, 12, chapter 2 and verse 12, rather, um, the same word is used by Boaz as is used here when he described the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. So the same terminology is used by Boaz speaking of them seeking refuge under the wings of God. And now she's using the same language, again, tying us to the greater message of this story. Now you remember that the law of Moses allowed for a woman to request marriage from a kinsman redeemer. So that in and of itself is not all that unusual. But Boaz would have understood her point that she had come to God first for her refuge, and now she's coming to him for her personal refuge in the moment. Now, I find it interesting that Boaz, being a man of character, did not take the opportunity to take advantage of her in that moment. Instead, first, he prayed that God would bless her. You'll notice that in verse 10. Second, he agrees to do what she asked him to do because everyone knew her to be a woman of noble character in verse 11. But then we come to what I would call a detour in the story. It's a detour in the story because evidently there was someone else who was a closer family member who would have had first responsibility in that role to be the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz says, essentially, I'll do it, but let's see what happens in the morning. 
So there's a little bit of an interlude here, even though we know how the story is going to unfold. And he wants to be sure ultimately that he's doing the right thing. And then third, he protects her reputation and then provides a pledge to Naomi. Verse 14 and 15, he wanted her to leave early so there wouldn't be any rumors that would get started. And not only that, but he sent six measures of barley back to Naomi. And he wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to bless her. And ultimately, he wanted to honor God. Is that not a good pattern for all of us in life? Whether we're in a circumstance that would be as significant as this or the small things of life, that we want to do the right thing in the sight of God, that we want to bless other people as we do the right thing in the sight of God, and that we want to honor him in all that we do. And I just say to you that if we take a step of faith, we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we trying to accomplish? That's where the proposal comes in. They wanted to see the relationship. Naomi and Ruth did. But if we have a plan, what are we trying to accomplish? It ought to be to honor God in whatever it is and to do what he says to do. However God leads us, it ought to be to honor what he tells us to do. And that brings me to the third point. A risky step of faith is guided by providence. It's guided by providence. Let's pick back up in verse 16. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. Verse 17, she said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And Naomi said, verse 18, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go for he won't rest unless he resolves this today. Boaz had said, as the Lord lives, I will. Essentially, Lord willing. Remember, God's providence working with his sovereignty is his authority and his power to do whatever he chooses to do according to his will. That's how it unfolds. So we know that God can do anything except something that is contrary to his will or contrary to his holy character. We know that God has the power to carry out whatever he wants to do. And then we know that God has the providence to bring it about because everything's working together all at once according to the plan ultimately of a providential God who's decided to do what he's going to do. So Naomi meets Ruth when she arrives back. Ruth tells her the whole story, makes a point of calling attention to the barley that Boaz had sent with her, indicating that it was a gift uh, from Boaz to Naomi. And then Naomi has some advice. Verse 18, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless he resolves this today. Wait, one of our least favorite words typically. Sit tight, just hold on. Sometimes that's the best thing that we can do is sit tight and hold on. It's a lesson that I have learned progressively through the years because I used not to be very good at it, but I have grown in my ability to wait because I've understood that when I get ahead of God, I always make mistakes. And when I lag behind God, I'm never in the place that he wants me to be. But when I learn to wait and I learn to sit tight, Oftentimes, things that I think are impossible 
or that I don't know how they're going to unfold. I don't know what the answer is going to be. I don't know what the solution is going to be. I think the problem is insurmountable, and God works it out because he's a providential God. And waiting is one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life. But I want you to know that waiting is not a wasted effort if you're waiting on the Lord. We spend a large portion of our lives waiting for things to happen. There are many occasions, particularly spiritually, when we cannot see much beyond the next step. We cannot see how things are going to unfold. And we have to learn to trust God and step out on faith and wait on him because we believe in his character, we trust in his goodness, we obey his word, and you will not make much progress in the Christian life if you're not willing to wait on God, and then when God calls you to move, to take a step of faith, to be willing to do it. One commentator called this particular part of the story a providential pause that sets up the final act. I believe Naomi's heart had been changed by the Lord. She came home empty and bitter, and now she's in a circumstance where she's trusting, she's believing, she's hoping, she's looking, she's thinking that the God who's brought them to this point is going to see them all the way through. And sometimes God brings us from those bitter places in life, even when it's times of disappointment and disillusionment and and we don't know what's going to happen and then God renews us because we find out even in the middle of that that we can especially trust him. Ruth took a chance on proposing marriage to Boaz. Boaz acted in character when he could have taken advantage of the situation but being a man of integrity Naomi knew that he would resolve the matter with urgency, and all they needed to do was wait on the Lord. The lesson for us is that they showed a sincere trust in God's care and God's providence to carry out his will for their lives. Faith waits on the Lord, even in the midst of planning, proposing, stepping out, Faith ultimately is willing to wait on the Lord to bring it about. That brings me to this last thought. God works through our decisions and choices to carry out his will in our lives. God works through our decisions and choices to carry out his will in our lives. Now there's a happy ending to this story, and we've almost made it there. Uh, Ruth and Boaz were put in compromising circumstances, but both responded with character. And the bottom line is that godly character can and should be demonstrated in difficult circumstances. And God's providence and his power in carrying these things out in our lives is not inconsistent with our need to trust and to do what is right and to wait, and to believe, and then to step out there and see what God's going to do. That's the kind of life he's calling us to. And there's no better life of faith to be lived than that type of life. Because our God can always be trusted. 
His plan is always the best. And when we step into the river of his will, we'll never be disappointed in God, ever, because he can be trusted. Let's bow our heads together as we pray for just a moment. I wonder in your life right now, are there some things that are troubling you that uh, the Lord might be saying to you, you need to wait and you need to see what I'm going to do. You need to see me stand strong and see me work out this circumstance better than you ever thought you could. Maybe he's leading you in that area or maybe, maybe you've been waiting and it's time to take a step of faith. The waiting is over and the obedience needs to be practiced. Both take faith. And in both of them, God can be counted on to do what is right and to lead us in his will. Father, we thank you for the story of Ruth that is continuing now to unfold. And as we're approaching what we know is going to be a happy ending, Lord, help us not to get lost in the details of this story and lose sight of the fact that you are central in focus to every single detail that unfolds in it. And as we see ourselves as a part of your story and we see how uh, you're continually working in our lives, give us spiritual eyes to see the reality of that around us and to know, Lord, that you're faithful in every circumstance of life. Bless us now as we close out the evening and and go through the remainder of this week. May you be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.